This is this is podcasting. This is podcasting. <laughs> da, 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 bum, 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 bum. Is that news or is that football? Football, but I did it in like a news style. So many, so many, so many damn books. All right, welcome, welcome, one and all, to so many damn books. My name is Christopher. My name is Drew. And we have Meredith Westgate joining us in the damn library, Zoom hyperspace. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So happy to be here. Uh, Meredith Westgate grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She's a graduate of Dartmouth College and holds an MFA in fiction from the New School. And you are the author of The Shimmering State, just out from Atria Books. We're so excited to have you on and talk about it. Yeah. And now we, uh, we're all, you know, Brady bunching in this Zoom, and it's so nice to see your smiling faces and talk about books as we do. Um, I am drinking this wonderful drink inspired by your book, Meredith, and I want to tell the whole world about it. Tell us, Christopher, tell us. One thing that I've always wanted to play with is edible gold dust. Um, I've always thought that it'd be a fun fun thing, but I've never quite had the right book inspiration for it. And then this comes along with its absolutely shimmery hardcover, that luster on the on the jacket. It's so beautiful. And um, you know, also just the idea that you're remembering or you're obliterating memories or you're taking someone else's memories. I just thought, you know, it's time to bring the shine. So I, I added this um, edible gold dust to St. Germain and swirled that together. And it makes this incredible swirl effect that looks otherworldly, which I know that mem is just a pill, but I, you know, I, I'd like to think if you added it to a glass of champagne, maybe it would swirl like this. <laughs> and I, it's really added to Prosecco. It's just a one ounce of St. Germain basically in Prosecco with a lemon, um, a lemon peel. And it's a very simple cocktail. It actually harkens back to one of my very first, my gateway drug for cocktails was St. <laughs> Germain. Like it's such a cool bottle. And I, and it was just like, you would taste it and think like, oh, elderflower liqueur. And it turns out that it was like reviled by the time I was getting into it and considered bartender's ketchup. Um, <laughs> but I still love it and it tastes amazing in Prosecco. There's a reason why it was an instant classic when it came out. I agree. I, I mean, it's absolutely delicious. And it also like, I feel like elderflower has this kind of like elusive quality to the flavor mm -hmm. that is so perfect for talking about memory and that kind of, um, just that kind of hint at something that you can't quite put your finger on it. And that's sort of exactly what you've nailed with this cocktail. <laughs> the gold, the shimmering gold is still like just swirling. It's this amazing, like constant effect. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, it really does feel like magic. Um, it's funny that I actually experienced this the first time with Drew. There was this little place that gave it, it was an, an addition to your cocktail that they put to the side of your drink. Oh, yeah. And it was, um, and they, but they made it like a little apothecary bottle, which I thought was nice. Very cool. I mean, I, I felt like that. Christopher dropped this off in one of the best deliveries I've ever had. 
because I've been looking forward to this for so long. I've, I've listened to so many Dan books for years and, and always just imagined what it would be like to have a cocktail made for, for my book, which I have, had been working on all those years too. <laughs> right. I guess in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I worked with you on this book. Um, we, you, we work together and that is really fun. And so I've seen this book through many iterations. And so it's very exciting to, to see the version that finally came out and p- other people get to read, not just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, and this cocktail is also very, I won't have any spoilers, but the cocktail is also like very reminiscent of a certain scene in the book too, which I think is just giving me like a wave of emotion <laughs> just in that scene itself. But this will end better than that scene. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I would hope so. Um, yeah. But yeah, very drinkable. I mean, adding a little bit of sweet liqueur to a dry Prosecco is always a good move. If you're doing this at home, you can do it with any sort of sweet liqueur that exists. Yeah. I Yeah, highly recommended to make this at home, even if you don't have gold dust. But seriously, buy some of this edible <laughs> gold dust too. It's It really makes drinking very fun. It can be yours for 29 payments yeah. of 29 Just go to Christopher.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the um, the title of the drink is A Glittering Memory. So that's the... Uh, <laughs> so before we get into talking The Shimmering State and the novel you accomplished, um, let's talk about things we bought. Oh, yes. Drew, do you want to talk first? Sure. I did a thing that I think a lot of people, at least on my Twitter timeline, did recently, which is gave New York Review of Books a lot of my money during their summer flash sale. Mm-hmm. It's really, they do the thing every summer. It's like, you buy two books, 20% off. You buy three books, 30% off. You buy four, it's 40% off. Yeah. And I was like, if I buy five, is it 50? And they were like, what are you, we have to make some money. Give me a break. <laughs> um, but so it's always so hard. I have a running list of NYRB books that I want to get. And I was like trying to do the math to figure out how I was going to save the most money and like essentially get a free book. Um, and I ended up getting four books. Mm. Dorothy L. Sayers is In a Lonely Place, Ooh. which has a afterward from Megan Abbott. Looks thrilling and chilling. Mm-hmm. Leonora Carrington's The Hearing Trumpet. I love Carrington's short stories. I had no idea that she wrote a novel, let alone that it was out from NYRB. Looks weird. Can't wait. <laughs> Christopher Priest's Inverted World. I love the prestige and have always wanted to dive into his very extensive catalog. I didn't I kind of didn't realize that he's been writing speculative fiction for like 50 years. Um, but this feels like it was like, oh, right, now is the time. And then the last one, maybe the one I'm most excited about, Lincoln Michael wrote about it in his newsletter ages ago talking about world building, but it's a novel, question mark, by Jean Dormesson, and it's called The Glory of the Empire, and it is essentially a history book about a fictional empire, but it's Mm. it's completely done in the style of it having been a real empire. Um, And I, like... I'm really transfixed by that kind of thing right now. And so I'm super excited to like, it almost feels like summer reading Mm -hmm. in a way. 
except for I don't, I'm not going to be tested about it later and it's all made up anyway. That's awesome. Yeah. It was also nice to get like a big box from them and just be like, how many books did I get? <laughs> right. How crazy did I go? <laughs> yeah. Is this going to be a good day for me, an okay day or a great day? Yeah. Meredith, how about you? Well, what I was going to say actually is I love that idea too, like the fake histories kind of. Yeah. And I was just going to throw out another, another author out there, Paul Lafarge. Have you, have you ever read anything? Ooh, no, but I'm making a note. Um, I had, I took a, like a workshop that he came and did a, a guest um, class. He sort of was like the, the host for it. And we read one of his works and half of the class, I think, had no idea that it was completely fake. It was like based on it was sort of a, fake, a fake account of someone who didn't exist in history. And it was really fun to begin a discussion and make it like almost, ha you know, a, a significant way through the class and start to have people realize that it, this is all completely, you know, fictionalized and sort of having, you know, him like pull a fast one is it really, he just committed to it too, which was really fun. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah, I'll have to, I'll, um, I'll have to find the name of that the book, but I think he, he does a lot with that in general. It's, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I highly recommend him. Cool. Uh, but yeah, I, I bought Detransition Baby, which I've been trying to buy for weeks and it's been sold out everywhere I've been. So I'm really excited to read that. I saw Tori Peters read um, at Debuts and Redos a couple weeks ago, and it was such a great reading and I'm just really excited to read it. I've heard such great things. Nice. And I actually also bought um, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. Oh, Ooh, yeah. By Rivka Galshin, which I'm also very excited to read as I'm uh, always interested in witches and, and this one sounds really interesting. Um, so it's historical. Yeah. So to that too. Yeah. It's set in the 17th century, right? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's really, yeah. Kepler's mother, I think somebody, mm. a, a planetary astrologer, astronomer person. Mm. Nice. Yeah. It's, I just, just started a few page in, pages into it, but it's also like very funny, which is a really, it has a very cool tone for, for what you're sort of expecting going into it. Nice. Wow. I always get nervous yeah. about that when it's like, oh, this is a book set in 1630. And it's like, yeah. is it going to be really a lot of like thee and thou? Right. Yeah, exactly. No, it's very fresh. So far it feels very fresh. Cool. And yeah. Christopher. Yeah. I'll, I got two things um, that I'm really excited about. Um, I got summer fun by Gene Thornton and that's um it's a great cover but look that up and it's about a young trans woman writing letters to I mean it's Brian Wilson it's not Brian Wilson it's the band is not the the Beach Boys they're the they're the get happies great um but it's the exact same sort of you know sun-drenched harmonies type of band and you know as she writes letters to him she's revealing more and more about herself and it's getting highly recommended by a bunch of people that i like so and i also love um when when someone does something like this that's you know you're clearly writing about some a band like the beach boys to me there's always a stumbling block if the if the author then also includes the beach boys but like I, it needs to like subsume it. I, like Lev Grossman didn't put, you know, any um, C.S. Lewis novels in his because he's like, I stole those. I'm going to just call them something else. <laughs> and so I think that's what Gene Thornton did with um, the Get Happies instead of the Beach Boys, which I appreciate. 
And then I also got, I'm really excited about this. It comes out in October, this book, um, When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky by Margaret Verbal. And Two Feathers is a Cherokee horse diver in a Wild West show. And the novel is set in 1926 Nashville. And uh, I'm just, those are all the things that I like. So I'm very excited to, to check that, out this story. I don't know anything more than that, which is a fun place to be. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Now let's talk about reading books Yay. and writing books. Uh-huh. So um, Meredith, will you tell our listeners what The Shimmering State is about? Sure. Um, so The Shimmering State follows two patients, who Lucian and Sophie, who end up in a rehabilitation center after taking an experimental memory drug. And neither of them have any idea how they got there or why they sort of feel this uh, familiar draw towards one another. Um, they can't tell if, if it's like attraction or if there's they had some connection that's been potentially removed from their history. Um, and it, it's set in a world where there's a fictional drug called memoroxin that allows doctors to extract and then um, prescribe patients' memories back to them to treat things like Alzheimer's and PTSD, um, even depression and anxiety. And it can even be used in like low-dose couples therapy sessions. Um, so it's a very multi-purpose drug, but inevitably, obviously it finds its way to the black market. And that's sort of where a lot of the story takes place is the abuse of this drug mm. and the potential risks of complicating your own um, consciousness with that of another. So it's such a fun premise and it immediately yeah. captured me. Um, and one of the first things that, that I so found interesting about it is that one of the ways that you can abuse it is just take anybody's, you know, like there's extreme sports people that go get their extreme sports memories extracted so that you can like also paraglide or whatever it is that they do. Um, which is just, a fantastic conceit and I'm curious you know whose mem would you take <laughs> that's where I want to start oh my gosh what a question I mean if I could safely take someone's mem yeah. and not be riddled with it not just <laughs> yeah it turns out it's not a good idea to do it so. <laughs> yeah yeah um gosh I mean I, honestly I could go one or one of two ways like part of me would say like my partners, just because I would be fascinated to see. I, there's a quote that I love, and I'm, I can't attribute it, but it's like you can um, you can see a sunset with you know the love of your life, and you can be as close as you can possibly get, but you can never know what it's like to see the sunset as the person that you love. Mm -hmm. And I think that that I mean that it would as I sort of explore in the book, it, it's like riddled with um, with negative. You know, possibilities as well once you sort of break down that wall behind the consciousness of someone you spend all of your time with but I think that I mean honestly it might be that or you know an Olympic athlete of course <laughs> or, you know maybe an astronaut or something like that to to really get totally outside of of the realm of possibility for what I'm going to be doing <laughs> right right take um Neil Armstrong's mem and find out how they did the hoax and everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. See the, the stage. Yeah. <laughs> and Kubrick yelling at him in the corner, like, yeah. right. That was a bad line reading. 
I, I really love seeing stories that are playing with memory because it feels like a, sort of an endlessly elastic thing for a writer. Where did this, where did your take on it come from? Um, honestly, it started like the kernel of it started um, in this, it's in 2012 when like Instagram was kind of just um, beginning to pull people away from Facebook and hadn't quite taken hold yet, but it was, I was seeing people sort of externalizing the, their memory of, of an experience to, to sort of commodify it as something that can be shared. Um, and I was really fascinated by like what that would do to memory moving forward. And I still am, even though we've all, so many people have accepted it and sort of welcomed it into our lives without asking many questions or considering how it affects our perception or, or even just our organic memories moving forward. But just the idea of, of curating memories that then become, you know, stable and they don't you know, evolve over time as, as our memories are meant to. And, you know, I thought that the idea of sharing those and sort of sacrificing the experience to end up with the photo or the video memory was such a sort of tragic thing. And I, so my mind kind of sent that out to you know, how far could that go? And of course, the idea of actually sharing a memory to sort of a passive um, audience that can then experience life from the couch, you know, without leaving the house is, is sort of like, in some ways, sadly, like where we've, you know, moved closer to after however many, it was eight or eight years or so since then, um, that we do spend a lot of time just following other people's lives and, um, you know, we don't get the consciousness within it, which is one of the things I was interested in too. But um, yeah, just what that, what kind of life that leads to and how it, it in fact doesn't connect people, but can isolate them more. Um, and then beyond that, I, I just love fiction that plays with perspective. And um, so in the end, I think the more I started working with that, um, the like speculative element of this pill, the more it was also just a tool to, to play with perspective um, and that idea that no matter what, we, you know, there is no, you have no objective memory, it's always through your own lens. And so what would it mean to have access to sort of someone else's lens? Mm. And could you live with yourself after having that access? Right. <laughs> There's that idea, right, that like all narrators are ultimately unreliable. Narr like we are all telling our own versions of the story, but it feels mm -hmm. like this book you really run it through with like, nothing can be trusted. Everything is warped or experienced differently. And in ways that as you read more of the novel, you're like, oh, that thing that, ha can I that thing that happened at the beginning might not actually be the, but you do it in a way that isn't like, it isn't destabilizing like a thriller can be where suddenly it's like, oh, the whole time, he was the killer the whole time. How did you pull that off? It's, re it's really cool. Honestly, I think through through so many different drafts and different versions of it, where some would go more in that direction, I think, and it was always about thinking, you know, asking myself, what am I interested in? And it was never that that kind of like real thriller kind of um, statement. It was always like about what it would mean for the character in that moment and the subtleties that you can play with, and so. Yeah, I think I think the structure helped once we once I found that because initially it was written in a very linear way, mm. which inevitably kind of pushed it into having more of that um, like linear plot arc that doesn't 
lend itself as much to playing with like discrepancies in characters' points of view or, right. uh, you know, letting the reader know at one point something that one of the narrators has forgotten or missed or has had removed in, in their treatment. Um, and that's like what it was always about. And so I think it just took a lot of drafts to have enough material to go back and think like big picture, how could the structure reflect this? And even like the tense, initially I had written it all in past tense and shifting it to present tense opened up a lot of those spaces as well to like remove the extra layer of reflection and keep it more urgent and less filtered. Um, but that, I'm glad that you feel that way because I was, I was thinking about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. The two characters at the center of this are both artists, but in different ways. And I'm curious about ballet in particular and what writing about ballet. I mean, Steve Martin has that great quote about like writing about architecture is like dancing. What is? I think it's writing about music, music is, is like, like dancing, dancing about, about architecture. architecture. So what? <laughs> so what is writing about ballet like? I mean, I've always been fascinated with ballet and. When I was living in LA, I was going to a lot of like experimental dance shows. And for me, I became really interested in um, like a ballerina like Sophie, who's been so classically trained and it's all about restraint and a lot of, in a lot of ways, perfection um, and the ways that that can then sort of influence her character in ways that I thought were really interesting to then play with um, and explore later. But also just then as an artist, um, the way that that can feel really um, sort of confining and then later how breaking that with with the classical training can lead to sort of moments of like uh, really um, authentic expression and kind of release in a way. And honestly, in some ways, I, I think writing Lucian and Sophie and so many other characters in the book that are creative, um, it, it has, Lucian's mother is a painter. Um, I even feel like Dr. Sloan has her own kind of like, she's almost, I feel like would say she's an artist in some ways in the way that she's approaching and solving, you know, um, mental health crises. That might be a like problem though. So. <laughs> yeah, for better or worse, but I do think that she has that kind of feeling of herself. But, um, but yeah, in some ways it was, there were all ways of also writing about like my own feelings about writing um, and, and different different places, it comes out in different ways, but like even this idea of restraint versus like abandon, I think the more I was revising this and the more I've, you know, been writing, I think I've found like the, the more restraint I can have, the more it allows for some of that like moments of release. And definitely in this book, a lot of it was always pairing back. Um, so I was really interested in like exploring that. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say this because what if, I, you know, I, at some point I write a book about a writer, but <laughs> for me, I think it's much easier to write about like my own thoughts on writing and art through other mediums and for Lucian as well. Like the photographer is such an interesting um, medium because it, in so many ways that relates to writing as well. Like you, you, it relies on sort of feeling capable of even just seeing and like processing what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, you know, I feel that way in writing too, if I'm feeling like incapable of, of just kind of 
existing in a moment and, and seeing things and processing, like, how can you write? Mm-hmm. And I think he struggles with that. You know, he's, he doesn't want to live in the reality that he's currently seeing. Um, and so it's like, how could he continue as a photographer? Because he has to make choices of what to capture and he doesn't want to capture anything that he sees. Right. Uh, so much of photography is about finding the frame. They meet in this place, the center, which is, it, it feels like somewhat familiar, but it also feels very like, um, I don't know, like something out of Margaret Atwood or um, Ishiguro. Like, I, I feel like Never Let Me Go. Like, I, I felt like I, it's almost like this weird campus novel part of the book. And <laughs> I'd love to know more about creating the center and its foibles. Yeah, the, the center was really, I mean, the fact that it's in Malibu, I think I wanted it to be really organic and grounded and yet be this like blank space. And so it was really fun to sort of play with the balance of that with um, Lucian and Sophie and even just the idea of, of what it would mean to meet someone in a place with, like completely devoid of context. Um, and especially thinking about memory and perspective is a really interesting way to explore like what defines our relationships or you know there's there's this idea it's not who you meet it's like when you meet them Mm -hmm. and this ultimate exploration of that for both of them because they're just these sort of blank um not blank slates but they're like slowly coming back into themselves and so it's almost like the most um stripped down place to explore like the beginning of a relationship too but yeah the center became i mean it was something that i added in one of the last like big revisions that I did and it became a really important part of the book to provide that kind of contrast and the, the to keep it sort of on a pacing that felt like more urgent than than as it unfolded previously in a really linear way um, and being able to play with the discrepancies in like Sophie for example who at the center is just like craving people and touch and all the things that you're deprived from there um, and then being able to cut you know, right back from that to the Chateau Marmont, where it's like a bus- bustling scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, really fun to play with. And even just um, LA, like as this sort of lush, really wild environment to cut back and forth between these like bustling scenes at restaurants or in LA to cut from that to this really stripped down setting of the center was really fun. The um, the LA of your novel, I it's something that I've thought of since since you started sending me drafts is like this is a novel an LA novel by someone who isn't so sure that they like Los Angeles <laughs> um, and as as that describes how I feel about Los Angeles it, I, it fits um, but I'm curious about writing um, how you feel about it now that you're away from LA yeah I, I still I mean I, I like can go both ways and it's funny because um based on who's read it so far, a lot of people have lived in LA and either, you know, most of the either live in New York or are still are back in LA. And it's funny, like the, the difference in, in how people, t- so their take on, on how I feel about LA, like <laughs> book, some people are like, I can tell you hate LA. I love it. I love reading this book. And some people are like, you capture all the best things about LA. <laughs> I think that's like the quintessential LA 
um, characteristic is that like the things that some people, the same things are the things that people either love so much or just hate. It's not like I'm even having like both sides in there. It's just the same characteristics are so polarizing. <laughs> I, I want those two people to talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, compare your notes on what, what exactly you're referencing. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, Lucian's experience of LA like mirrored mine because I had moved from New York and felt very disoriented in LA. And yet at the same time, there is this kind of like enchanting side to it too. It's like the, the like hills at night and the old Hollywood kind of allure and this beautiful architecture. But then there's like that, you know, sun bleached like strip malls during the day. And, and it's always, I always felt like I couldn't get a handle on how I felt about it. It just felt, I mean, I think that that's one of its qualities too, is that it's like very hard to pin down. And I, having actually, but as I was living there and, and revising this the past sort of biggest revision, it was like 2017 when the worst of the wildfires started and, and since have, you know, continued to get worse every year. But I was just like so shocked by how the fires were really encroaching on LA. And, you know, there was like ash across your, your car and and windowsills and things and yet you would still see people running like outside with no mask or anything and it, it was just such it's like that contradiction is just everywhere in LA you know it's, and it's so it, it's so interesting to explore um but yeah now I mean now I'm back in Brooklyn and you know there is still that drive and I I will miss things about it but I think for me, creatively, there's a hard place to be because you're so isolated. And I think I need a little bit of that. And you're isolated, but you're also not in the, in, you know, the wilderness or the woods. You're like still in a major city. So it's this, it's sort of, um, it was hard for me to be like really generative there with, with new ideas, but it was a great place to, to, you know, dive into this book and, and um, continue to revise it. And every day there'd be something new. There'd be like, okay, that's going in the book. <laughs> I also love revising. I, I I really love it, and I would probably still be doing it if I could. <laughs> no, it has to come out. People have to. Yeah. You know, I, I I wanted to talk about something that is actually, you know, you you get to continue revising it in a different way because you are sort of working. You're working on an, an adapting it, <laughs> and um, I I'm I'm curious. You know, reading your own work and like looking at it as someone who is like now I have to think visually. And writing the script, like, is, is that a a rewarding process, or does it feel limiting because you have to be continually thinking of a camera? It, you know, it feels. Um, it just feels like for me, it feels like a different part of my brain, and it starts. It just like hurts my brain. <laughs> like, <laughs> when, I, when I write, it's usually like on a. You know, it's about the language, and I sort of follow that into characters and plot and everything. And and the reason I think this book took so many revisions was. I think it's really important for me to have like a lot to work with and then to find this, the structure that works and to even figure out what I'm writing about. And, um, and with TV, you know, the impression I get is, is really that it's important to sort of um, have a sense of the, of the scope of, of a pilot and then the season before you really start getting into the, the like stuff that in, in writing fiction is like what I do it for. So, <laughs> I've, I've never really outlined a, a short story, a, a book, or anything until I'm at the point of editing it where it's like a puzzle and you're just trying to figure out where the pieces can fit. So it's it's a, a total challenge for me to like 
map out um, an outline before I started writing really. Um, and, but it's been, the thing that's been fun is having other people to collaborate with. And, and that's one of the reasons why I was really excited to do it is to just have, you know, a team to work with and people who, who are really experienced in TV and sort of know how, how some of those um, things from the book that can't translate can um, find their way into the show and in the tools that TV and, and film have that, um, you know, a book doesn't, but yeah, it's, it's been hurting my brain a lot. <laughs> it's, um, it's funny because you brought us this incredible novel that has been adapted twice into film as it so proudly states on the edition that I have. <laughs> That's um, why it got translated into English, which is yeah. even wilder. I am, I've not seen the films, um, either one, Maybe. but this, it, we're talking, the Vanishing is what the is the title they um, went with for America uh, by Tim Crabbe. I I don't know if I'm saying that right. K R A B B E with an accent mark. And um, yeah, can you tell us why you brought us this book? Yeah, um, I actually read we read this book in a class I took at at the New School in my MFA with um, James Lasden, and it was like a crime fiction class and I actually ran into Zakia Delila Harris recently and she was also in that class which is really interesting because her book The Other Black Girl has this thriller element to it too and I to me that class was something I sort of took because I thought it would be really fun and we read like Patricia Highsmith and um, we read In Cold Blood and we read like James Cain and all you know a lot of the classic um, kind of crime fiction um, writing but I, I didn't really think it would find its way into my own much. I thought it was like something to play with. And then looking back and, and revisiting this book, I think a lot of the elements sort of did in a way um, that I actually was really surprised to see. But I think it's, um, it's just like such an interesting experiment in like um, tension and, and the structure. I think it's such a controlled um, and like really precise book. Mm -hmm. And I, I haven't talked about it since that class, so I was really excited to talk about it. <laughs> the, for, the, for the folks at home, it's about um, a, a couple that is on a road trip together, and uh, they stop for gas, and uh, she, the woman goes in to get snacks and disappears. She never comes back to the car. And it's about uh, the man's obsession with finding her, and it's also sort of about what happened to her. Um, and I don't want to give any more away because first of all, it's only like 110 pages, like yeah. it's so short. Um, and so, and second of all, you know, it's one of the great surprises of the book. What, what happens, um, next, but, mm -hmm. and it, but it is, it's so spare and so tense that the whole time I was like, no wonder this is a movie. Like it reads like a script, like it, it's, it's very action based, like the, the sequence, the first sequence of him like running between like the car and the gas station mm -hmm. and the and the shop, he as he's like running around calling her name, it's just like I could see it perfectly. So I can I can totally tell that why someone would immediately want to film it because it's that's a horrible feeling. Mm -hmm. It's a horrible feeling to lose someone and wonder where they are, and then realize, wait a minute, I actually will never see them again. Like you're like the only things that could have happened are terrible. Yeah. And at one point he's like, it all, it just goes through the stages of sort of like grief too. Cause at one point he's like, well, maybe 
I mean, this is terrible, but he's like, maybe she's been abducted, but she won't be killed. And then I can find she maybe she's been raped and I can find her and we can continue our vacation. Yeah. It's like it was the worst moment, I think, of the book, because it shows you the sort of like denial too of that stage that he's like, we could just keep going if I could just find her. <laughs> you know, it's so inhuman, but it sort of shows this like detachment in a like traumatic moment, I think, in a really effective way. Yeah. I'm floored that this book isn't more popular. Like it's out of print in the U.S. Right. I had to. In, I had to import my copy. Yeah. It's also. I just. I just noticed this. As I was looking it up. The. It's a different translation. The U.K. translation is a different translator from the U.S. one. The U.K. one is more recent, but I think it's like 2003. Mm -hmm. And then the U.S. one, I think, is 1983 or something. Yeah. And it's like the. I don't know. It feels as propulsive as like some of the great, great thriller novellas that people talk about when they're like, you want to punch in the gut, read Ian M. Banks is the wasp factory. And I got that same feeling of this of like, I can't put this down. And oh, yeah. each page that I read unsettles me farther and farther and farther, but in a way that is also surprising. Mm -hmm. I feel like, Again, the classic thing of reading these two books very close to one another, the ways in which each time a new section of The Vanishing starts, you're a little bit destabilized and there's a sense of like, when am I, who is talking and what are they talking about? That I did find myself thinking about the way that Meredith, you pull off some of that in your book of like, oh, it's a new section. I have to reorient myself, but there isn't the, it's never violent. It's never, it never pulls you out. It never makes you go like, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? Mm -hmm. You're just sort of relentlessly like twisted tighter and tighter around the thread. Mm -hmm. No, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I, I really admire so much how for um, <laughs> Tim, if you're out there, let us know how it's pronounced. <laughs> um, yeah, we just enter and it's so immediate. Like the, even just the details that he uses um, are just so um, precise and feel so real and sort of tender and, and sweet a lot of it. And, and there's that juxtaposition between what we're reading. And then you know, it's also, it's like both a thriller, but it's also this like really tender relationship. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that balance it's, it's, you know, it's really hard to pull off. And I think it's, um, it's something you don't see enough. Cause I, that's kind of, and that's, you know, with the shimmering state, I wanted it to be like something that has character and, and, you know, um, that kind of tenderness and the emotion that you would find in anything, but with that speculative element, like you don't, you don't see enough, I think hybrids that kind of try to do both and don't sacrifice one or the other. Yeah. I mean, in, in so many ways, um, the vanishing is sort of th this idea, the imp of the perverse. John, John Darnielle was talking about this when he was working on his book or when he was talking about his book, Wolf and White Van, which deals with like that the imp of the perverse is like the voice in your head that like when you're looking at subway tracks, the voice that says jump and you're just like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to jump. And and the imp is mad at you. Um, and so I feel like this book deals with that same 
Like, what if I just drove away or what if I, and then, you know, later on, there's a, a lot of these intrusive thoughts um, that end up really plaguing Sophie in your book. And so I feel like that, that was the, um, that was the parallel that I was seeing and, and looking back on. It's just like, this is like, both these books are like master classes in like the intrusive thought and, and like dealing with them. It's, it's a fascinating thing to, to use. I, I also, um, I love the way that he does sort of like force, I mean, it's such a sparse book and it's so short that it's amazing that he can like have foreshadowing in it because there's so little to work yeah. with. And yet he does and, it, and, and the switch in perspectives too lets him sort of see things in a really interesting way. Like the, that golden egg at the beginning, which seems just like uh, sort of a character trait, you know, for Saskia that this is her nightmare, and then of course we later sort of see a different significance in it without giving anything away. Um, but yeah, I think it's amazing what he can do with so with so little. <laughs> There's it's um it's Exhibit A for um for like novellas, like the power of the novella, mm-hmm. you know, to the point of like I was surprised that um you know melville house's art of the novella series like hasn't picked this up and brought it over because like it's so perfect for that series um because it's just like yeah this is i mean people throw around the word masterpiece (laughs) i don't know um but it's just so i i can so see it sitting next to like any of those other books that because i don't know the novella is such an interesting form no one likes it we keep trying it's so funny like when if um if if james patterson can't do it like no one's going to be able to do it and he tried i mean those one shots that are supposed to take like 20 minutes to read or whatever i don't know they 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 don't they never quite like get lift off and it's too bad because like this is such a fantastic way to to experience a book. You know what? There's another scene that I loved. It sort of t- was towards the end, but um, Rex, when he's like obsessing over Saskia's disappearance, and he has this Polaroid that um, doesn't know what's in it or if it's showing anything that could be helpful. And then towards the end, he remembers when he was a little boy, and there there was like an ad for this powder that you could put over oh. a photograph. So what had just happened before and just after, which is also essentially like a live photo. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought that was like also just this beautiful way of like, I don't know, adding, I mean, it also reminded me of of this cocktail, Christopher, and just like adding that kind of like elusiveness to something that's so tangible. And and when you want something that badly, like that you would believe in sort of like magic that defies all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Believing in magic uh, through the mail. You know, like through, for, for $2.95 with shipping and handling, you too can look two seconds before your, your photo was taken. The movie is on Criterion Collection, and I, I'm definitely going to watch that soon because nice. it's, it's streaming, people. You, can, you might not be able to get the book easy. <laughs> but. Hey, if enough people watch the movie and like it, maybe uh, yeah. we can write to, honestly, Melville House feels yeah. great. Dear Melville House. We I was that- listening to so many damn books. <laughs> yeah. We know that you prefer not to. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing this book. I mean, I, I read it in like a, like just one 
gulp because yeah. there's no other way to read it. And it oh, doesn't, yeah. I mean, it's also like enormous. I mean, they worked really hard to make it 120 pages. <laughs> like it could have been 40 pages as easily. It was 120 of the ones that I got. So um, people like request this from your library because it's very good. It's like the ultimate sort of immersive when you can read it in, truly in one sitting. Oh, the best. Yeah. It seems like we are naturally moving into the next section of this podcast, which hopefully is called Recommendations. We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah. Obviously, we're recommending uh, Shimmering State and The Vanishing. But what else? What else can we add to people's lists? What other uh, pain can we cause all of you? Yeah. From the toppling TBR. <laughs> uh, Drew, do you want to start the recommendation train off? Yeah. I had one that I knew coming in, and then the other came up as we were talking about novellas. And it's the weird thing where I feel like Tor.com their whole shtick is speculative novellas, but very rarely are they like labeled as novellas. They just, it's like, Oh, that's a tiny novel. <laughs> and I feel like the ways in which they don't forefront the like novella allows them to have a little more success and like slide under the radar. Mm. Um, but one that I just read that I, it was so, so, so lovely. And it made me feel so at peace with the world, which has mm. been a difficult thing to come by recently, is Becky Chambers' new one called A Psalm for the Wild Built. And it is a uh, solar punk, like set on a, on a, I think it's a moon, actually. Um, and this society is like a truly utopian society and it follows the main character who is a tea monk. They go around in like a little caravan and set up shop in towns and people come and they're like, here's what's going on with me. I'm like I can't sleep or I'm depressed or I don't know. My partner was being a real asshole today. And the monk listens and then like brews up some tea, gives it to them and they get to just like sit and be at peace for a few minutes, which in and of itself is really lovely. But then halfway through the novel, this tea monk meets a robot out in the middle of the wilderness and they just have these like great existential conversations about what it means to be a part of an ecosystem. Um, you know, and obviously it's all, it's like a fucking tea monk talking to a robot, but it's one of those things where <laughs> every conversation I'm like, I, I had that conversation with my friend the other day, or like I was reading a new Republic article about that yesterday. It really hit home in a very lovely way, but it's one of the few pieces of, utopic fiction or climate fiction that didn't make me feel bad and instead it really made me feel like i had just gotten a nice cup of tea from someone mm. um and then the other book i wanted to recommend thinking about lean novellas that start with car trips is going back to an old episode of our show hannah petard's listen to me mm. which as i started reading the vanishing i immediately started thinking about that book because similarly it's like a tightly wound couple on a car trip and the books go in very different directions. But I was thinking again about the, just the pleasures of like a tightly contained, propulsive, read it in one or two sittings 
because, okay, they're going to get to their destination at some point or not. And that's the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't say too much more about Hannah's novel because, again, it benefits from just kind of going into it and not knowing too much about it. Yeah, that's so good. I haven't revisited it since she was on the show and you just made me want to. Meredith, how about you? I'm going to go in a, in a totally different direction and recommend something a little bit lighter. <laughs> I recently read Writers and Lovers by Lily King. And I, I, I think also in part, maybe because my book's coming out soon, it just felt like um, so lovely. And um, I just connected so deeply to the, this sort of the process of writing your first book when the world is like telling you uh, that you should do otherwise <laughs> and sort of, um, yeah, sort of finding, finding the um, commitment to yourself to continue doing it. And it's, it's I just found it um, really funny and just so well-written. Um, but yeah, I would, I would highly recommend it to anyone who's like ever tried to do anything creative mm. and struggle with it. I, I thought it was such a great portrait of that, um, especially in, in the way that it presents like others sort of not understanding that choice who are choosing more traditional um, work and, and lifestyles. I think that's something that I haven't seen explored that much in, in fiction in, in this kind of way. Great book. Yeah. All right, Christopher. I yes. see you Googling to make sure that you're getting the name, the author, something. Uh, I was looking to make sure when it comes out. Um, <laughs> I'm going to recommend two things. One is a former guest of the podcast's new novel, Jonathan Lee's The Great Mistake. Oh my God. Um, this book snuck up on me. I was like, enjoying it as I, as you might. And then it's it really then like took hold and it's, um, it's a historical novel, but it's told in um, sort of a coming of age portion of, of Andrew Haswell Green, who is one of the true architects of modern New York. Um, he, was basically the numbers guy that made Central Park possible. And in making Central Park, he helped secure the funding and the space for the Natural History Museum and the public library, you know, and it really, you know, there's these moments where he's very poor when he first arrives in New York and he really wants to read books, but there's no public library. You can only buy your way into book collections and it's $10, which of course, is an exorbitant sum. Um, and, but it, then it's also about, he was killed um, in sort of this, you know, the great mistake. Um, it's, I won't give anything more away there, but it's just, um, it's just an incredible novel that just connects people. And it also sort of talks about queerness um, of this character at this time in uh, New York's history. And, you know, in some ways you're like, thank God things are better now. Um, and then, but in other ways you're like, did we, have, we certainly have not gone far enough. Um, and it's just so big hearted. And I am just looking for novels with really big beating hearts right now. And that's why I fell crazy in love with Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. Comes out, in uh, a month now, 
by the time this episode comes out, it'll come out in a month. I just recommend you seriously pre-ordering it so it can arrive on your doorstep as close to the, or buy it, you know, from the books, uh, your local independent bookstore. So they'll have it right behind the, they might even call you and say that it's ready for you like before, because like they don't have firm on sale dates. So whenever they get it, they're just going to probably call you up. Oh my. And, and you'll just want to read it. It's almost 600 pages. I read the last 350 in one sitting. That's how good this is. It was happened to be a train ride, which helps. Um, <laughs> it was a four hour train ride. I read that book for the whole time and it's truly amazing. Like I, I thought like nothing can be as good as a tale for the time being, um, which is her last book that really left an impact on me. And this is better. It's a better book somehow. Um, if you even have to like rank books, like, it's just like, I just now <laughs> I, I, I had stuck, I hadn't read her previous books and now I'm absolutely need to, because she writes these big hearted novels and yeah. So those, that's my big recommendation. When is, when is it out? It comes out September 21st. Oh, so those are my recommendations as well as go and buy The Shimmering State by Meredith Westgate. You are going to be transported to a near future Los Angeles or the now Los Angeles and uh, a drug that I don't know. I keep going back and forth. I think I'd take it. I, I, I would want to. I want to know what you both would, <laughs> what, what you both would take. Um, oh, man. I, I think I would take um, the mem of someone who's uh, scuba dives because there's like deep sea scuba diving interests me and I'll just never do the work required <laughs> to, <laughs> to go and do it actually. But I'd love to, you know, take a shortcut there. Hell yeah. Um, so I will, I will say that like someone's who's, you know, in one of those cool, like in the Marianas trench or something. And yeah, I would definitely see something like that. Maybe if they even got attacked by a shark during part of it and had to get away, <laughs> That would also be exciting. I mean, that's the thing about men is it's either like something extremely traumatic. Right. Mm -hmm. So trying to help someone get over, you know, yeah. something else. It's, it's going to be very polarizing. Yeah, so I'm going to, yeah, exactly. So I think I'm going to, I'll take the shark attack, <laughs> ma'am. That's the one I want. <laughs> I feel like I'd take a different kind of performer. Like I would maybe take Sophie's oh. mem if I could have like the experience of her dancing. Mm, that'd like, be cool. I, I think about like it is, I haven't performed in a minute, but just there's something so compelling about being on stage as an actor, being on stage as a musician. I would love to like be on stage as something that I am not, which like, I, I don't know. I could do like a really good stand-up comic, Ooh. A, a dancer. Um, or someone maybe performing at like, a cool venue that like red rocks or something like yeah you would have, i would never be able to do that or like a first chair violinist or something yeah. like something where you really opera singer so now you need to um get on actually inventing this meredith mm -hmm. <laughs> that's maybe that's your next step <laughs> and the people at home if you had a good time if these created good memories in you please uh go and give us five stars on itunes it very much helps we also appreciate when you go and give us money on patreon.com slash smdb 
Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. This was awesome. Yeah, so fun. And that's it, right? That's, that's it. That's, that's the show. We, we did it. We've done it. Thank you.